Mark 15, verse 40, through chapter 16, verse 8. And the title of this sermon is, How Will You Respond? Mark 15, starting in verse 40, through 16, 8. Well, today is a special day. Uh, while we've interwoven two other sermon series in the middle of it, both Colossians and the book of Daniel, uh, we began preaching through the Gospel of Mark on January 19th of 2020. 53 sermons, and almost two years later, today we've reached the end. It's exciting. That's right. Uh, and before we get started in the text, I just want to briefly address why we're stopping in verse 8 of chapter 16. Uh, we could take actually a, a whole afternoon to dissect and give all of the reasons for or maybe against ending here, but I'm eager to actually spend the bulk of our time in the text. If we get stuck here and we miss the resurrection, uh, I think we've missed the point. So what am I talking about? Well, if you've got your Bibles open, and I hope that you do, look at the end of chapter 16. You probably see verse 8, and then verses 9 through 20 are probably in brackets, noting that some of the earliest manuscripts don't include verses 9 through 20. Straightforwardly, this isn't, hear me loud and clear, this isn't a matter of orthodoxy or heresy. Uh, whether you believe that these verses should be included or not isn't what makes you justified before God or a Christian. It's also not a huge doctrinal shifting um, in addition or subtraction. It's not like, uh, oh, if you add these verses, it changes who Jesus is. Not at all. Um, I'm not going to preach verses 9 through 20 because I don't believe that they were part of Mark's original gospel account. The overwhelming majority of biblical scholars agree on this. But I'm going to give three very quick reasons for why I believe the gospel of Mark ends in verse 8. Number one, manuscript evidence. Uh, the Bible, if you didn't know this, wasn't written yesterday. Uh, or even a couple of decades ago. It was written thousands of years ago. Uh, we have an Old Testament that's written in Hebrew and a New Testament that's written in Greek. So, how did we get there? We don't believe that these just magically fell, fell from the sky or that God merely dictated them. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. The verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. Second uh, Peter chapter one, verse 21 says this. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And here we go. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. All of it. Every word. That's what the word plenary means. Complete. But what about after that? What about after they wrote down every word of it? They wrote letters or gospel accounts. 
But they couldn't just go down to Kinko's and make a hundred copies to send out to the churches, right? They couldn't just press print. No. Copies had to be written down and made by hand, by scribes. So there are the original autographs, which we don't have, and then thousands of manuscript copies, which are made by the scribes. Without going into incredible detail here, the science of what's called textual criticism it involves taking all of those thousands of manuscripts and studying them, trying to get back as close as possible to the original autograph. It's an insanely precise science, and we can have confidence in the text of Scripture that we actually hold in our hands. Just a quick side note, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I highly recommend reading anything by Daniel B. Wallace. Daniel B. Wallace. Uh, he has written extensively on why we can trust the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, I can tell you, the more that I've studied this, the more confidence I have in the text of Scripture, and even in the translations that we hold in our hands. Well, with all of that said, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't include verses 9 through 20. Further, Eusebius, who's a church historian writing in the 4th century about this controversy exactly, should we include verses 9 through 20, Eusebius also says that the book ends at verse 8, after looking at the earliest manuscripts. Jerome, as well, who wrote the Latin Vulgate, if you're familiar with that, he said this, he said, Scarcely any copies of the Gospel of Mark include this longer ending. So, reason one, manuscript evidence. It's not there. Two, internal problems. Internal problems. Some of your Bibles may include a footnote, and I put this footnote up on the screen for us. It says this, some manuscripts end the book with 16.8. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following, but they had reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told and after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. These manuscripts then continue with verses 9 through 20. Is that confusing enough? In other words, even the manuscripts that add these verses at the end don't agree with one another. They're not uniform. It's actually quite the mess. In addition, the style and vocabulary changes in verses 9 through 20, if you're following along closely. So there are manuscript issues, but there are also issues internally with the text itself. Third and finally, I'll just ask the question, what makes most sense? What do I mean by that? Well, with the shorter ending, and we'll talk about this later, it ends really abruptly. It ends like this in verse 8. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Boom. That's the end. Curtain closes. Kind of a strange ending, right? Now, what's more likely? 
that a scribe read that ending and thought, well, we actually know more details from other Gospels and sources. Let's just add to that to actually finish the story off properly. Or would it make more sense for let's just chop off these verses so it ends for they were afraid? The former. It makes most sense that a later scribe would try to help the gospel out by adding to it so that it isn't such an awkward ending. But I want to suggest that Mark did just fine with his ending. This was intentional to end it this way. We'll talk more about why in a second, but he's ending it almost exactly like he started it. Think about this. Other gospel accounts have these grand birth narratives. John even has the amazing, in the beginning, there was the word, but not Mark. There's, there's no birth narrative in the book of Mark. Boom, Jesus is just there. And Mark gets quickly into answering the question, who is Jesus? This ending is no different. There's no flair. He just lands the plane. And I think this is intentional. I believe that in doing it this way, he's pushing us to a response. Okay, after all of that, let's read the text. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Our three main points to kind of hang this text on this morning are these. 
Number one, death. Number two, burial. And third, resurrection. Point one, death. Look with me again at verse 40. He says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. I realized this morning that I'm rewinding to a couple of verses from last week's text, but I want us to see something important here. Mark goes out of his way to tell us the specific names of these women. And the same women witnessed Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. While all the disciples are nowhere to be found, they're, they're hiding out somewhere, these women are there. Who are they? First, we have Mary Magdalene. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus casts out seven demons out of her. She's a noted follower of Jesus in all four Gospels. Mary Magdalene. Next, we have Mary, the text says, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read this in reference to Jesus. Mark 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? In other words, we know that Jesus' mother Mary had sons named James and Joseph. So is this Jesus' mother here? Even though it's unclear, I think so. We read in John chapter 19, verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Seems like the same three women that are described in Mark 15. So we have Mary Magdalene and potentially Jesus' mother. Third, we have Salome. Matthew identifies this woman as the mother of Zebedee's sons, making her the mother of James and John. So presumably these women are still alive when Mark's writing his gospel account. Similar to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier, these are named eyewitnesses. You could actually go and ask them what they saw. This wasn't a hoax. Verse 41, again referring to these women, says, When he was in Galilee, meaning Jesus, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I love this. Do you see that women have an important role in ministering to Jesus? While the culture may have have at that time treated them as second-class citizens, Jesus certainly didn't. And we see this kind of thing all over the New Testament. J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, In the New Testament, we generally see women mentioned as a help and assistance to the cause of true religion. Elizabeth, Mary, Martha, Dorcas, Lydia, and the women named by St. Paul to the Romans are all cases in point. Women were vital to the ministry of Jesus, then and now. Let's keep going. Point two, burial. 
Look with me at verses 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked for him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Again, the same women who saw Jesus die on the cross are now witnessing his burial. But the focus of this section is squarely on Joseph. Who's this guy? He's not Joseph from the Christmas play. He's Joseph of Arimathea. What do we know about him? First, he's a respected member of the council, meaning the Sanhedrin, the ruling body that, if you remember, first sentenced Jesus to death. But we learn in Luke 23, verse 51, that Joseph was not, actually not part of that. He didn't consent to their action. Second, so we know he's a respected member of the council, but second, we know that he's rich. You probably don't become a member of the Sanhedrin without being rich. And he has his own tomb, a large tomb where multiple people would have been able to be buried. We know that it's large because they're actually able to walk into it. Now, Isaiah 53.9 also prophetically describes the Messiah's grave being made with a rich man in his death. What's my point? He's respected and rich. My point is this. Joseph took incredible risk in doing what he did here. He wasn't a man with nothing to lose. He actually had everything to lose. He was well respected with the Jews on the council. I'm guessing not after this. He also took a risk in going to Pilate, who's probably still pretty ticked at the Sanhedrin, who had just used and manipulated him to kill Jesus. Typically, people were either left on the cross for birds and animals to come eat them, or their bodies were just thrown into the valley of Gehenna, the garbage dump outside Jerusalem to be burned. Pilate could have been in a bad mood and immediately had Joseph imprisoned and even killed for asking about this. But he takes courage and he takes the risk anyway. Why? Why would he do this? Verse 43 tells us very clearly, because he was looking for the kingdom of God. He's looking for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was looking for heaven to break into earth. And in the dead corpse of Jesus, the king of the Jews, he believed that he had found it. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And so I'll ask you this morning, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a respectable career, success in life, 
Maybe for a spouse? None of these things are are bad necessarily. But could it be said of you that you're looking for the kingdom of God? Joseph was. And he found it in the person of the crucified Christ. It it motivated him to, to risk everything. To sacrifice his reputation. His finances. To give Jesus a tomb. And to be dressing a corpse during Sabbath preparation. Making himself ceremonially unclean. He did it. His faith led him to action. This is what true faith looks like. It produces fruit. As the the whole book of James teaches, real faith is faith that works. Faith leading to action. It's not the other way around. We don't do good works to earn God's favor. Because we've already been given God's favor through faith alone. Because of that, we do good works. That's what we see in the person of Joseph here. Again, I'll ask us a question. Does your faith lead you to action? That's real faith. So, Jesus died and was buried. Mark tells us that they rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Matthew actually fills in the story a little bit more for us. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. It says this, it says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. (coughs) Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So, they've, they've placed Jesus in the tomb. It's sealed and secure. If the story ended there, we'd have no hope. Jesus would just be a good example. Or maybe just a good teacher. But praise God, there's more. Point three, resurrection. Look with me at chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, And Salome, there's those three women again, had brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Remember, in chapter 14, we noted that Jesus was anointed in Bethany. And that because he was taken down and buried so quickly, this was the only anointing that he would receive. Remember the woman who broke the flask, poured it over his head? She anointed him there in chapter 14. But these women, 
After the Sabbath, were coming back to finish the job. They wanted to honor Jesus the best way they knew how. But isn't this interesting? Jesus has predicted his resurrection multiple times. But they didn't seem to either understand it or believe it. They're headed to the tomb with no hope of resurrection at all. And on the way, they realize, oh man, we didn't think this out so much. We're not going to be able to move the stone. What are we going to do? But I love this. They keep going anyway. Their concerns don't stop them from moving forward. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Isn't that great? God had already taken care of it. J.C. Ryle, again, so helpfully says this. He says, Let us observe how the difficulties which, which Christians fear will sometimes disappear as they approach them. How often believers are oppressed and cut down by anticipation of evils, and yet, in the time of need, find the thing they feared removed, and the stone rolled away. A large proportion of a saint's anxieties arise from things which will never really happen. The stone had been rolled away. This was the Easter moment. The moment that would change all of their and our lives. Look at verses 5 and 6. Stones rolled away and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? I want us to notice a couple of truths here. These women, again, the same ones who saw Jesus' death and burial, are the ones who were first to witness the empty tomb. Why is this significant? Because we need to understand that in this time, again, women were treated and seen as second-class citizens. Their testimony would have been inadmissible in a court of law. Now, let me ask you this. If you were going to make up a story and try to make it credible. Who would you place at the tomb? Probably a doctor, a lawyer maybe, a credible historian. At this time, definitely not a woman. But all of the gospel accounts record that it was women who were the first on the scene. Why did they record it this way? that's how it happened. That's the truth. It, it isn't made up. The gospel writers aren't trying to spin or shape anything here. They're telling you the facts. And within those facts, God is sovereign. I believe he intentionally had these specific women there for a reason. While their legal witness might not have been seen as credible, their gospel witness 
was invaluable. Jesus valued their ministry while he was alive, and their witness to his resurrection was treasured. We'll come back to these women in just a second. So, they, they show up, the stones rolled away, and they go in, and an angel starts talking to them. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This is unfathomable. This Jesus from Nazareth, the historical Jesus, not a twin of Jesus, as some hokey conspiracy theorists suggest. He's not a twin. Jesus, the one who was crucified, he has risen. This is the proclamation of the church throughout history. The proclamation that gives us hope. And I'm, I'm going to just pick at the grammar here a little bit. But this is glorious. In the Greek, the verb translated risen is actually in its passive form. What this means is that it should actually be translated, not he is risen, but he has been raised. He has been raised. R.C. Sproul notes, saying he is risen suggests that Jesus came back to life on his own. But the biblical testimony is not that Jesus was able to supernaturally defeat the jaws of death and come out of the tomb. Rather, it is that God raised him from the dead, just as God rolled away the stone. He raised Jesus from death. The resurrection is God's work through and through. This is correct. There are several different scriptures that attest to this fact. I'm just going to read a handful of them. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Romans 8.11 if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Finally, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Peter's preaching. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And here we go, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He has been raised. And notice what else the angel says. See the, the place where they laid him? This isn't the wrong tomb. This is yet another objection to the resurrection, that they, they, they just went to the wrong place, the wrong tomb. It's not the wrong tomb. If they were at the wrong tomb and then started proclaiming the resurrection, all the Jews would have had to do was go to the right tomb and produce the body. 
never did that. No. These women saw him die on the cross. He was dead. He didn't just swoon or pass out. He died. They saw it. In verse 45, the centurion confirmed it. They also saw exactly where Jesus was buried. They weren't at all confused about where they were. Then they saw the tomb empty and and encountered this angelic pronouncement. And just like Joseph of Arimathea, they were called to action. Look at this, verse 7. The angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going out before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Isn't this awesome? First, we see this movement from, from come and see to go and tell. This is exactly the path that all gospel believers are called to. We've come. We've seen the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's Lord and Savior. We've seen him die on the cross in the place of ruined sinners like us. We've seen him rise from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death. We've come. We've seen. And now, like these women... We're called to go and tell the good news. What an amazing privilege we have of getting to share the greatest news in history. Come and see, then go and tell. That's our call. Second, notice the almost strange wording here. It says, tell his disciples and Peter. Why wouldn't the angel simply say, go tell his disciples? Because this is an act of grace. Can you imagine how guilty and down Peter must be feeling at this moment? He's probably hiding out and thinking, I'm the worst. Have you ever felt like that? Other disciples may have been thinking the same thing about Peter. Yeah, he's the worst. But in God's grace, on the lips of an angel, Peter gets singled out as a recipient of the good news. Christian, do you know that today deep down in your bones? That no matter what sin you've committed, no matter how much you think you're the worst, You are a recipient of the good news of God's grace today. Jesus died for your sin, and he was raised for your justification. You're forgiven by Christ. This is why the resurrection is so important. As I said earlier, without the resurrection, we have no hope. There would be no real reason to believe that what Jesus said about himself was true or that God accepted his substitutionary sacrifice. But the resurrection changes everything. 1 Corinthians 15, we read this earlier. I'm going to read it again. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But what these women witnessed was and is true. He has been raised. Our faith is not futile. And we're not still in our sins. We don't have hope in this life only. We have an eternal hope that's imperishable. When Jesus died on the cross, our sins died with him. And when he rose from the grave, we rose with him. We are given new life that can't be taken from us any more than it can be taken from Jesus. Resurrection is vital to the gospel. With it or without it, there's no good news without it. In closing, I want to try to drive us where Mark, the author of this gospel account, does. Throughout this book, we've noted ad nauseum how many times Mark has asked and answered the question, Who is Jesus? And really quickly, I want to try to just show us a slideshow of Jesus revealing himself and then the response to that. Mark verse four, or chapter 4, verses 40 and 41. You remember, Jesus has just stilled the storm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus has just cast the demons out of legion. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Mark 15, verse 33. Jesus has just healed this woman. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Mark 15, verse 42. Jesus has just raised this girl from the dead. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mark 6, 49 through 51. Jesus has just walked on water. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Mark 9, 31-33 Jesus tells them about his death and resurrection. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Verse 32, But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Mark 10:32 again. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Mark eleven eighteen. 18. You remember, Jesus cleansed the temple. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it 
and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And here, in the last verse of Mark's gospel account, we have this, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized him. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Look at these words. They went out. They fled, trembling and astonishment, afraid. Do you see it? Repetitively, Jesus reveals who he is. And the response is one of fear. Here at the tomb, it's no different. When you, when you come to understand who Jesus is, you can't just shrug your shoulders and move on. While it might seem abrupt and strange just to end the gospel this way, I think Mark is doing this purposefully. I believe he's driving us to a response. Jesus has revealed himself in the ultimate way in the empty tomb. And it's unsettling. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example of a moral life. He's not like us. He died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. The question is, how will you respond? Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. The better Adam, the sin bearer, the Lamb of God, the high priest, the Messiah, and the living and reigning king. Amen. How will you respond? Let's pray.